All right, well, if you would, turn your Bibles to Judges uh, 14. Judges 14, as we continue through the book of Judges, um, we are going to cover Judges uh, 14 and 15 this morning. Um, we will here in just a minute read selections. We're not going to read um, uh, the entire two chapters, but we're going to read selections from them to get the big idea of Judges 14 and 15. Um, this week, this week I watched the 2006 movie directed by Zack Snyder 300. Any fans? One fan. Okay. Uh, I watched 300. I've seen this movie maybe once or twice. I watched it um, kind of throughout the week because my wife is not a fan, and so I have to take strategic moments when, I don't know, she's busy, and then watch a little bit. 300 is about 300 Spartan warrior soldiers um, who took on maybe tens of thousands um, of Persians trying to take over uh, the world at the Battle of Thermopylae. It is an epic movie, okay? If you haven't seen it, uh, well, I don't want to get like in trouble for recommending it, okay? It's an epic movie, all right? Um, it pays tribute to Sparta uh, and the Spartan culture that really centered around military life, being warriors, being soldiers. Um, at age seven, Spartan boys entered into uh, a state-sponsored education system where they already um, began military training, basically trying to raise the toughest, baddest dudes around. Um, so everything they did with these Spartan boys was about duty and disciplines and endurance and, and toughness. The the top teens, as, they, as Spartan boys got into their teens, the, the ones who were excelling the most would, would join this kind of... Um, uh, secret service-like special forces group to really help keep the order um, in Sparta. And then at 20, Spartan males became full-time soldiers. That was their occupation. If you asked a, a 20, 22-year-old, 23-year-old Spartan uh, uh, man, what is your profession? They wouldn't say, I'm a blacksmith. They wouldn't say, um, you know, uh, uh, I run uh, ads for Google or something. They would say, I'm a soldier. I just, I fight. I protect Sparta, okay? That's what they did. And they remained in active duty until they were 60, okay? So this is, elite, this is an elite group of uh, men. Now, let me warn you about the movie in case you just took my uh, recommendation to watch it that I didn't make explicitly. Uh, let me warn you that it's violent, uh, it's messy, and it is a uh, bloodbath. Okay, of a movie. But the key in the movie is to really know why they are fighting. Okay, and, they, and, it, and I don't want to give it away or anything, but it's, it's one of the most moving parts of the whole movie is to know why they are fighting. Why, why 300 men, and this is, the movie is, you know, okay, it's Hollywood. I think the real battle is around 4,000. But even still, why a tiny group of men would be willing to go fight tens of thousands of, of other soldiers coming against them. To know why they're doing it is, is very moving in the movie. It's not, it's not random. It's not just random kind of purposeless um, uh, blood and violence. And here's what I want to warn you about our story today as we look at Samson. I will warn you the text today is violent, it's messy, and it's a bloodbath. That's our text today. 
It's a part of Samson's life we're looking at today. But here's the key. The key is to know the purpose, which we're going to look at. The key is to know the purpose of what we are going to read. To go, why? Why is this so violent? Why is it so messy? Why is it so bloody? And that's what we're going to discover this morning. So if you would, stand with me. Uh, And let's read and hear God's word together. Like I said, we're not going to read all of 14 and 15. And so I pick selections for you to get the big picture, okay, to taste the story before we dive into it. Here's how the section of Samson's story that we're going to look at begins. Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? In other words, the enemy? You can't find a single Israelite woman. You've got to go across enemy lines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, I'm going to skip down and give you a taste of five snapshots of Samson, of the violence, the mess, and the blood that is involved in Samson's story. This is from verse 6 as we skip through it. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. Now, we're going to read. There's your snapshot of what we're getting into. Now we're going to read the end of the section. This is from verse 18. And he was very thirsty, speaking of Samson, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised or the enemy? And God split open the hollow hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Father, we pray that you would speak through your word, that you would send it out. It wouldn't return void as it never does. And you would, you would work and move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the context of what we're getting into. Israel has been handed over to the Philistines, the enemy, and as expected, There's this typical pattern we are in with Samson's story. Israel falls into sin, they rebel, God hands them over to their enemy, and then the typical pattern is a deliverer is raised up. And so we have this deliverer in Samson. If you were here two weeks ago, we began with Samson's 
birth. But the pattern breaks in Samson's story. The pattern in Judges, if you've been following, and if you read Judges, there's this pattern. Um, and it breaks. And that, and, and that should pique your attention. When a pattern breaks, you go, okay, why is this pattern breaking? And it breaks with an ominous note. Because Israel, in Samson's story, has not cried out. Typically, Israel falls into the hands of the enemy. They are ruled, they are oppressed, they're beat down, and then they cry out. And if you remember, this cry is not repentance. It's just a cry for help from anyone and everyone. Can Yahweh help? Can God help? And if you can, we'd love some help. So they cry out. But in this story, in Samson's cycle, they don't even cry out. Immediately, they seem blind to their bondage. They seem blind to their corruption. They seem blind, content with, don't care that they're being ruled by the enemy. And this is an ominous break in the pattern. They seem blind to their sinful condition. All seems right in their eyes, apparently. Something's very wrong, that they're not even crying out while they're being ruled and oppressed by the enemy. This is later underscored very explicitly because as Samson riles up the Philistines, um, they come against Israel. The Philistines come against Israel. They come against Judah, and Judah goes, why are you guys doing this to us? Philistines, why are you coming against us like this? You usually aren't, aren't warring against us. And they tell Judah, We're, we've come for Samson. That's why. You know what the Israelites do? They don't respond and say, over our dead bodies, will, you, will we give up our deliverer? whom God has raised up for us. That's, that's not what they do. Instead, it says that 3,000 men of Judah go to Samson and they say this, quote, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And they bind Samson up, God's ordained, raised up savior. They bind him up and they give him over to the Philistines. In other words, Samson, stop riling up. Stop biting the hand that feeds us. Don't you know they rule over us? Don't you know we don't mess with them? We don't go against them. Israel is not only blind, apparently, to their own condition, as everything in their life apparently seems right in their own eyes, they're blind to their deliverer. They're blind to, this is the one God has raised up for us. No, he seems wrong in their eyes. And so they're willing to bind him up and hand him over to the enemy, just as we are often to make a quick application to us just as often, just as we are often blind to ourselves. Blind to ourselves, blind to God, blind to our own sinful condition, blind to God's ways. I mean, how many times in your walk with the Lord have you, have you thought, oh, I, I basically know how sinful I am. I kind of know what I need to work on and give me a couple years and I'll be pretty close to perfection. You know, and then fast forward a couple years and you look back and you go, ooh, I was a lot worse than I realized. How many times have you thought, I, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what God's doing in my life. Fast forward a couple of years and you look back and you go, oh, I had no idea what God was doing in my life. I mean, how often are we just like Israel? Blind to ourselves, blind to God, blind to God's ways. Now, there's a second major ominous note in the beginning of Samson's story. Because we don't make it an inch into Samson's story until until we really shouldn't like what we're reading. Samson, as we just read, sees a Philistine woman, a woman among the enemy on the other team, and he tells his parents, go arrange a marriage for me. His parents, as we just read, object. Can you not find a single Israelite woman? You, you, can't, find, you can't find a single American woman? You, you found a, a woman among the Nazis? 
to put it in perspective, right? You, you, you can't find a single one of us. You got to go across enemy lines to find one of the enemies. So they, they object to uh, Samson. And look what he says in verse 3, if you would. Look what he says in verse 3, chapter 14. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. I want her. I know she's the enemy, but she's got a great personality. She's beautiful. We both love to kayak. I think the whole enemy thing can be overcome, right? We'll work, we'll talk it through. She's right in my own eyes. Now, here's what's so ominous about what Samson says here. The end of the book of Judges summarizes the corruption and sin in Judges and says this. This is how you can summarize the downward spiral you see in Judges with Israel into their blindness, into their sin and corruption. This is how the end of the book ends. This is how Judges ends. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Get her for for me. She's right in my eyes. And then Judges ends and says, you want to know what's wrong with everything in Judges? They just were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. So we have Israel here saying, don't bite the hand that feeds us. Just let them rule over us. And then you've got God's own deliverer an inch into the story. An inch into the story, far more interested in women, wherever they might come from, even if they are among the enemy. Now here's the question. Here's the question that this raises for me. What is God going to do? We know what he does in the typical cycle in Judges, but, but everything is, is, I mean, this is bad. It's been bad, and this is really bad. So what is God going to do? Don't, don't breeze over that question. Ask it like this. Lean into that question by asking it like this. What do you think God does with you in your life when you are blind? What do you think God does with you? How do you think God responds to you when you're blind to how sinful you are? When you're okay with being ruled by idols? How does God respond to you? How does he think about you? How does he, how does he react when your life is best summarized in a particular day, hour, season as he was just doing whatever was right in his own eyes? She was just doing whatever was right in her own eyes. How does God respond? What does he do? Let's look at it and let's see. So here's where we're at. Samson's parents are objecting to him, taking a wife from the enemy. And here's what we're told. Look at verse four. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So his mom and dad didn't um, uh, know that it, this, this, Marriage, this desire to go get married, it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, when you first read this on the surface, if you are like me, it seems the text is saying something good about Samson. His parents didn't know that Samson had this secret plan, like, I'm going to go marry an enemy woman, but that's going to be my plan to actually get after and, and go against the Philistines. That's what, it, that's what it seems to read on the surface. There's only two problems with that kind of reading. First, it makes grammatical sense in the text, in the Hebrew, that he is not referring to Samson. That it's actually referring to the Lord just before it. In other words, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, 
was seeking an opportunity against the enemies of Israel. So it makes grammatical sense that he is referring to the Lord. And here's the other hint of why we know that to be true. There is no hint in, in Samson's story from beginning to end that he has some secret plan to, get against, to go against the enemy and to undermine them by his relationships with women. If you know Samson's story and you read the end of Samson's story, you don't go, wow, he really played those women. It's, it's the complete opposite, okay? Samson is the kind of guy that's like, I've got a plan, and then he's like, wow, she is beautiful, you know? I'm going to go this way. He, he comes across like a fly by the seat of his pants. Women are his downfall. He doesn't play women. It's not Samson at work here to save Israel ultimately. It is the Lord who's going to be at work. That's what that verse is saying. Everything you're about to read you need to understand it's the Lord who's going to be at work. And you have to know this. Otherwise, Samson's story, especially this section, makes no sense. It seems like a random, violent, messy bloodbath, and you don't know what to do with it. Let me show you this by outlining the events together. And you're going to go, wow, this seems like a scene from 300 or Braveheart. Why is this in the Bible? In verses 5 to 9, Samson is attacked by a lion and the text says, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or his mother what he had done. There are so many things about that verse that are totally insane, okay? Um, he tears the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, assuming you and I know what it's like to tear a goat apart with our bare hands. Like, oh, what was it like to tear the lion apart? Well, like you tear a young goat, oh yeah, because that's easy, you know? And then he doesn't tell mom or dad, listen, if I ever beat a lion to death with my bare hands, everyone's going to know, okay? I'm running Facebook ads, like it's, that's my glory, okay? But he's like, oh, I don't even need to tell anyone. So he tears a lion apart. You skip, you go, continue the story in verse 10 to 19. He makes a riddle. He makes up a riddle about this lion that he beat to death. And then he makes a bet about who can solve it. His wife deceives him, gives the answer to the enemy, and so he goes and kills 30 enemy dudes. That's his response. Continuing on in the story, his wife is then given over to his best man, and his response is to catch 300 foxes, tie their tails together, put a lit torch uh, in their tails, tied in their tails, whatever, to go set the grain fields on fire. Listen what's terrifying about this. If you're angry, you just go, I'm going to burn their fields. And you go find the nearest torch. You light it on fire. You go light their, the fields on fire. Here's what's terrifying about Samson. He's more calculated. He goes home and he's like, how do you catch hundreds of foxes? You know? He's like, okay, I figured out how to catch hundreds of foxes. Then he's like, you know, I need to Google, probably YouTube. How do you tie their tails together in such a way to carry a lit torch as they run? You know, that's a terrifying kind of guy. I'll take the guy who just lights the torch on fire, not the guy that's like, I'll be back, right? <laughs> so then you go on, they, in response to this, they kill his wife and father-in-law, and so he responds, and it says they struck him hip and thigh with a great blow. Then you continue on, he's handed over by Israel to the enemy, and so he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey, naturally, and he puts his hand out, and he kills a thousand dudes, of the enemy. That place where he did that is called Jawbone Hill. How epic is that, right? 
a jawbone of a donkey. Did you just hear that? It takes a jawbone of a donkey. You know, there was probably a spear somewhere close by, and he was like, no. I'm going to be sending a message like the foxes. And so they called it Jawbone Hill. When you read that, when I read this story preparing for this sermon, truthfully, I sat there and I read this, and I read it over, and I skimmed it over, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, what is going on? What in the world am I reading? And why am I reading this violent, messy bloodbath? It seems random. For an Israelite, sure, I get it. For an Israelite reading this story, they're like, heck yeah, right? Dude, come here, kids, you know, Christmas morning devotional. Let's read about Jawbone Hill when our enemies were just torn to pieces like a lion. I get that. But for me today, I'm going, what is this, what is going on? Thankfully, the answer is right in the text. It's actually explicit in the text. He, the Lord, Yahweh, their God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. From the very beginning, we had the answer. God was at work seeking an opportunity to deliver his people from the oppression of their enemy. And the text doesn't just say it there. It doesn't just say it in the beginning to say, listen, what you're about to read from from Samson, as crazy as it seems, whatever his motives might have been, it's actually God going above and beyond it, superseding it, using it. It says that in the beginning, and then it says it again and again and again in the text. In 14, verse 6, before he rips the lion apart, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then he tore the lion to pieces. Before Samson takes down 30 enemy men, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Before he goes and kills a thousand men at Jawbone Hill, it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Again and again and again, it's so clear. I want you to understand what's happening. The Spirit of God is rushing upon him as he's doing these things. And at the end of the section, Samson says this, you, God, have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. In other words, it was from the Lord because he was seeking an opportunity against the enemies of his people. God was at work. What is going on throughout Samson's story here? What's going on? What are we reading? We are reading a great salvation by the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're reading. God delivering and freeing his people. Now, I know what you might be thinking right now. I know what you might be thinking. I know what I'm thinking even as I say that, discover that meaning in the text. Um, It's what we've been thinking in Judges, which is it seems awfully violent to be a great salvation from the Lord seems awfully violent, awfully messy to be a great salvation by the power of God. It seems kind of wrong in my own eyes, if I'm honest. It just seems kind of wrong. But here's the thing. It is violent. It is messy. It is bloody. There's no way around that. It is a great salvation from God, and it is violent, messy, and bloody. So what do we do with it? Here's what one of my favorite commentators, Ralph Davis, says. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. We have already seen in Judges that Yahweh, God, delivers his people, that when he delivers his people, he doesn't always dip his saving acts in Clorox and sprinkle them with perfume. To be delivered from evil will frequently be messy. 
And listen here. He is the stubborn God who will set all creation ablaze with holy war in order to have a seed and a people for himself. In other words, let's say it simply like this. God will stop at nothing to give grace and mercy to sinners. He will stop at nothing to save his people. He will get the job done. What we witness in Samson's story is that God's grace toward us is so intense that he saves aggressively, even by violence, when necessary. This shows us, in case you go, what do I do with that? This shows us that we are often very timid when it comes to God's grace. We are very timid when it comes to God's grace. We, we, we think he's stingy with his grace. We think he's stingy with his mercy. We think he's stingy with his love, kind of uninterested in leaving heaven. And if he's going to leave heaven, it's going to be this easy path. But this story shows us that his grace comes down the war path for you and me. His mercy, his love will go down the war path for you. That's what this, this story shows. I mean, imagine an Israelite reading this story asking, does God love me? Does God love us? Does he care for us? And then you read about Jawbone Hill. You go, oh yeah, oh yeah, he loves us. His grace will go down the war path for us to deliver us. Now, the end of the story is a great turn. There's a great turn at the end of the story. Things changed. In the midst of this messy salvation, the tables turn. Because Samson goes from being this dominant warrior, doling out violence to dying. He goes from just being dominant to dying. But he's not dying at the hand of the enemy. He's dying by thirst. Look at 15, chapter 15, verse 18. Let's look at the end of this section together where the tables turn. It says, And he, Samson, was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God provides water miraculously, and this is what the text says, And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. And in those verses, at the end of this section, before Samson's story is done, which we will look at in probably a week or two, we see that Samson doesn't ultimately do what we need our Savior and Deliverer to do. He doesn't go to the death for us. He doesn't go all the way to the death for us. He doesn't give up his spirit. He cries out, I'm thirsty, I thirst, revive my spirit. I don't want to give it up. So he doesn't give up his spirit. He doesn't thirst to the death. He doesn't fall into the hands of the enemy and die by the hands of the enemy. Not yet. But there is one coming. There is one coming who will do just that. When Jesus was handed over, handed over to the enemy by his own people, on the cross, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. And then he was given sour wine, and when, when his mouth was able to speak, he said, is, the Bible says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Jesus didn't come to wage a bloody, messy, violent 
war. But that doesn't mean he didn't come to be involved in a bloody, messy, violent deliverance for you. It doesn't mean he didn't come down the war path for you. He came, Jesus came, to be given over to the hand of the enemy completely, to go all the way to the death for you and me, to give up his spirit completely, to not be revived, to be resurrected from the dead. Samson violently saved, but we need, you need something much better. Something much better. Jesus saves by letting violence overtake him at the cross. And the cross was violent, and it was messy, and it was a bloodbath. And it was done by the hands of the uncircumcised. It was done by the hands of the enemy. Jesus goes all the way to the death for you. All the way to the death for you. Does God love me? You might ask. We might ask together, does God love us? Does he see us? Does he care for us? Read again, hear again the story of God's grace that will go down the war path for you. The story of God's grace that went down the war path of the bloody, violent, messy cross so that you won't have to go there, so that you won't have to taste that condemnation that you might be resurrected to eternal life because of him. Amen. Let's pray.